Welcome to Island Voices, examining the incredible history of the island of Manhattan and talking to the people who have made it incredible. If you're enjoying us on YouTube, please be sure to hit the red subscribe button at the bottom right of your screen and welcome aboard. Folks, most or all of us pay attention to the entertainment business, I think, whether they people want to admit it or not, whether you're a stockbroker, a cop, a teacher, or an actor. I mean, who doesn't listen to music or go to the movies or love the theater? And I think entertainment as a product has really become much of what companies like U.S. Steel are not anymore. I mean, to our economy, it's much of what we put out in this country. And if you're in this greater New Netherland tri-state region, it's pretty much unavoidable. I mean, it's kind of part of the deal. But people don't always pay much attention to the people who report on that business. But if you think about it, without them, most of us really wouldn't have much of a window into that world, would we? Well, fortunately for us, our guest today not only heads one of the most widely read entertainment columns in the center of the universe, he also happens to be a highly prolific author. Growing up in the suburban shadow of the greatest city on earth, He was enchanted by this magic of this place, by this business of show. He was taken by its luster, and as our show does, eventually came to focus on the critical element within it, the characters who make that history. And he has penned biographies on classic entertainers, including Art Carney, Joey Bishop, Bobby Darin, Raymond Burr, Red Fox, and more recently, Ringo Starr, which we will talk about. He has covered entertainment and television at the New York Post nearly since the Dinkins administration. So, yes, he is already part of this incredible history of this incredible place. He respects the business and the people that make it tick. And I think it still inspires him the way it did that little kid growing up in northern New Jersey. He is the purveyor of the star report. But today he is our star. He is the star. He is a gentleman and a scholar, and we are extremely privileged and honored to have him as our guest, my friend, entertainment columnist, Michael Starr. Welcome, Manir. Thanks, Chance. Thanks for having me. Very nice to see you. You too. So we talked a little bit about this. I mean, everybody pays attention to entertainment, right? I mean, have you ever met somebody who just doesn't pay attention? No, no. And and I think particularly television which is now with, with streaming and like everybody watches television, you know, in the old days, everybody watched television, but it's different, a little different from movies and the fact that it was just, it's in your living room every day, 24 hour, 24 seven. And now with streaming networks, there's just so much content out there. People have really changed the way they watch television. They have vastly, vastly. Yes. And, and even the networks now when they, used to be, you know, live, what they called live plus same day ratings, like 18 million people watched Thursday night's episode of what St. Elsewhere. I'm, you know, making that up. Right. But now it's all changed. Now it's because people aren't watching as much programming live anymore. They're, they're watching it on their DVR or they're watching it streaming, you know, five days later. Right. It's totally changed the way that ratings are measured for television shows. I want to talk about the history of television for a minute. Um, in fact, we, we talk about the history of broadcast entertainment in general, because it, it too, like so many other things, really did start right here in New York. If you go back to 
I'm sure you know this story where essentially network broadcasting started with NBC as a radio concern. Back Mm -hmm. around 1926, they started acquiring stations. It was actually RCA acquiring stations under the parent company of General Electric. And when they compiled a handful, two or three or four key stations and, and headquartered them in New York, they created the National Broadcasting Corporation. And from that, do you know this red and blue network thing? Yes. So, yes. So tell us about that a little bit. Well, I, I, I think WNB, it wasn't even called WNBC at first. I think it was WMBT. Or maybe that was the red and the blue. They covered certain parts of the country. And I believe that one of those was spun off into what eventually became ABC. So ABC, I believe. So you had red and blue. Red was the paid programming. Um, the blue was more like newsreels and and public service announcements and mm-hmm. things. They yes, they morphed that off, and that became the American Broadcasting Corporation. That became ABC, and then uh, Paley had had already started the Columbia Broadcasting System on another platform. So, but but there you have it. My and 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 by the way, one of those key stations was purchased from AT and T, and I think. As much as it's now, this is a hundred years ago, right? <laughs> but as much as it's changed, think about those players we just mentioned: General Electric, NBC, ABC, CBS, and AT and T. Right? They're all right in the center of the business today. Isn't it amazing how that happens? More things change, the more they stay the same. It's true. Exactly. Exactly. True. So, where look, you also in April you ran a headline. Putrid Oscar ratings throw the telecast future in doubt. And it was it was pretty bad, and you gave the numbers. Yeah, it was it was. I think it was the first time you said it was the first time ever that viewership has fallen below ten million people. Right, correct. Since how right. long? Like how long have they been keeping those? Well, they've been keeping records? the the um, Oscar ratings go back to the early sixties. So wow, yeah. So it's or maybe maybe late 60s early 70s so it's it's a long time so with all the more people and the more television screens in the world and in the in the in the country and in the world it, over over a 50 plus year period the least amount of people watched it this past year yeah i mean you're talking about a telecast that would get 50 60 million people at its peak you said the one in 8 in 98 hosted by billy crystal was 60 million viewers yeah, I mean it was it was event television and I don't know if it's the fact that there are now so many award shows on SAG Awards, People's Choice Awards, the Golden Globes, you know, the the Emmys and the Oscar. There's just so many award shows. I don't know if it's viewer fatigue because the ratings have been falling now for quite a while or was it the pandemic? I don't think so. I think people are just getting a little tired of award shows and I don't know. It's, it's, it's just that there's so much to see out there and to put all your eggs in one basket for, for one specific award show, the movies weren't because of the pandemic, I guess for the Oscars, the movies weren't as widely available. People were watching them at home. It wasn't the same as going to the theater. The feeling wasn't there. I don't know. It's just, I mean, you're in the business. What what do you think? Well, I I think this year was was a one-off. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that no one went to a movie for a year. I mean, you you couldn't. So 
I think the mindset, when I think of Oscars, when I heard the Oscars coming up, I'm like, well, they can't have Oscars. We didn't have movies. And I'm like, oh, we did kind of have movies, but they were like DVDs. And that's, to me anyway, that's not the movies, you know? Right. You think of the classic, the curtain opening up and the big premiere and all that. None of that happened for over a year. So I think think that has something to do with with some, with maybe our age bracket. But then I do think you're right that the younger kids, they do have a award show overload to some extent, like, you know, the ESPYs. And then there's like a award TV movie awards, movie awards. You, you yeah. can't keep up with it. And if you're 12 or 22, you, you don't know the difference. I mean, I, I know people do. I don't mean to. No, I know what you disparage mean. Anyone, but there's just, you've grown up and there's 18 different award shows and they kind of dilute each other. You know, back in when, when, when we were, you know, coming of age, it was, the Oscars, the Emmys, and, and the, the Grammys. Grammys to a lesser extent. But yeah. and, and, and you, the Tonys were never popular as a ratings draw, but, you know, they were on every year. There's a little niche thing that some yeah. people watched, you know, but, right. but that was it. You didn't have these, these other, no. you know, it just kind of floods the market. All right. So and I, I just think that I think there's a little overload of that. And um you factor in other, then there were other social political factors. People don't want to see, maybe they don't want to see a star come on, accept an award and go off on a rant about something political or thereabouts. So I think there's some of that too, but. I definitely think that people, I just think in general, people are not looking for political views from entertainers because I don't look, I don't ask my politicians to sing songs for me. Exactly. I don't want to see my entertainers (laughs) pontificate on politics. It's just not what I'm paying for. But, you know, that does that does become part of the equation. All right. I I wanted to say that, as I as I mentioned in the intro a little bit, um, I mean, you're you're a real biographer, Michael. I I hadn't been quite aware of how how prolific and how extensive your your authorship has has become as a writer of biographies of, as I said, classic entertainers. I mean, these folks that were Art Carney, who, if anybody doesn't know that, he's he's one half of the Honeymooners. Him and Jackie Gleason were the Honeymooners. And um, Bobby Darren, who was an incredible early rock and roll guy. Joey Bishop, he was one of the Rat Pack with, with Frank Sinatra. Raymond Burr, he was... Barry Mason, Ironside. Barry Mason, Ironside. Yeah. Red Fox, he was Sanford and Son, and he was an incredible comedian. Um, you you really grasp some of the some of the elements of that, that that makes me say that history is cool. I mean, because you get underneath and you peel back the layers, which is what it really seems to be about. And it's really fascinating. Um, tell us a little bit about being a being a writer of biographies like that. It's these are people that that interest me, and I feel that they're part of pop culture history. Perhaps they haven't been, perhaps the spotlight hasn't been shining on them as much as it should have. Like for instance, you mentioned Ringo Starr. I mean, obviously the Beatles. We, we all know the Beatles, but it was always, you know, everybody was writing about Lennon and McCartney and maybe George Harrison to a lesser extent, but but Ringo. No, nobody. I mean, you know, yeah, he was the drummer and he sang Yellow Submarine. And but nobody really, I think, went in depth into his life and what made him part of, you know, the the most popular music group on the planet. I mean, even today, I, I think 
Um, you know, they've been broken up for 50 years now and people are still talking about the Beatles. It really is to me, what makes any story interesting is when you dig into those characters. I mean, you know, Walter White in Breaking Bad, Carrie Matheson and Saul Berenson in Homeland, Tommy Shelby and Peaky Blinders, Archie yeah, Bunker, yeah. Hawkeye right. Pierce. I mean, these right. are the characters are what makes the story colors the story and tells the story. And I anyway, I think that uh, you did an incredible job with Ringo. I started Art Carney, but I'm, I'm just a little bit into that. Ringo, not only did you do a great job. First off, there's not another comprehensive biography of Ringo yeah. out there. Yours yeah. is it. Um, and just for the record, it took me back, man. Like I was a drummer too. Not so good. Yeah. You know, you meet same here. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and I, I just identified with Ringo right out of the gate. Now, no, neither one of us are old enough to have grown up with the Beatles, right. but you know, it came to me through my aunt who went and saw him at Chase Stadium. So she was like a hardcore. My first movie in the theaters was Yellow Submarine. It wasn't the first run. It was like this. They came back the next year, but I was like three years old. I saw Yellow Submarine. So it was right there with me. And man, you nailed it. And some of those some of those moments that were that you that you really focused on in the book, like just just the time frame of it. You forget how fleeting it was, how. They were looking for a drummer in 1963, right? And Ringo, okay, 62. And Ringo was actually the oldest of all of them. He was old. He was like a year older than John. They they get John. They get Ringo. And you mentioned like as the story's happening, that seven years, the whole thing will be over. Like it starts and, and finishes inside of seven years. Like from the time they hired him till the time they broke up, that was like 60. Was it 62 or 63? He started playing with them in 62. Okay. And they broke up in 70. So 70. It was eight years. Soup to nuts. And then I'm 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 going through the the you know the discography in my mind because I knew every album, but I forgot how close together it was. So they they put out Meet the Beatles and they're touring, they're touring the United States in the beginning of 1964, right? Right. Three years later, they're recording. They're getting ready to record Sergeant Pepper's, and I'm like, yeah. the, the 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 transformation just uh, the growth is it's right phenomenal. Isn't it's it phenomenal. Incredible? You went from you know Love Me Do to uh, A Day in the Life, or or you know stuff like that. It's it's incredible. And as I, I I said in the book, you know you can. It's one of those bar arguments. You know who was the better drummer? You know would they have been because Ringo replaced Pete Best. Was Pete Best better? Was was Ringo better? It it doesn't, you know, or would they have been better off with Keith Moon drumming? It doesn't matter. That this is this is how it played out with Ringo Starr as their drummer. And the sound you hear and the sound that people who are fans of the Beatles love is with Ringo on the drums. So, you know. Yeah, and I think you did a great job of illustrating that in the book and telling it from all sides. He worked for that type of music. I mean, it it fit into that, yeah, yes, that quartet so. perfectly. And right. and Pete Best did have problems because he was a little more, he maybe may have been a little flashier drummer, but he was not as uh, honed down. He was not quite as professional as Ringo right. was. He did, and he didn't. I, I think one of the one, and he would probably tell you this too. 
maybe you'll have him on one day, <laughs> is that he, I don't think he meshed that well with the other three. I mean, when they already knew, they were having problems with him, I think, with his personality and 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 maybe some technical stuff with his drumming. And they knew Ringo because he was with Rory Storm and he was, he was considered at that point, the, if not the best, one of the best drummers in Liverpool. He had been working as a drummer for three or four years straight, full time. And they knew him. They worked with him in Germany and Hamburg. So when the time came and they wanted to replace him, uh, Pete Best, I, I, I think it was really George Harrison who was the most friendliest with Ringo at that point. They knew where to go. And, mm. you know, and why wouldn't he join them? They were on their way up and recording in a studio, which a lot of people weren't doing at that point. So, yeah, I'd say it was a decent sense. career move he made. Yeah, yeah right, right. Not a lateral move. Yeah, yeah definitely. But I love that. I and then the, I love that it. They were incredibly successful in 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 Europe, in England, Germany. They went to Hamburg. They were in Liverpool. Yes. But still, I, I didn't know this. They came to the states because Ed Sullivan sort of ran into them over in yes. England. Right. Yes. That I had no idea yes. about. He had he I had seen them in an airport. I, I think was the story. And then you say it: America met the Beatles at 8 p.m. Eastern time on February 9th, 1964, when it seemed like the entire country turned their television sets to CBS to watch the Ed Sullivan Show. Now, yesterday and today, our theater has been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation. And these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool, who call themselves the Beatles. Now tonight. You're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now and again in the second half of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Let's... Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. That I'm kissing the lips I am missing And hope that my dreams will come true And while I'm away I'll write home every day And I'll send all my loving to you
get I still get chills watching it. I said the exact I have wrote down the exact same note. It gave me chills yeah. watching us. And I've seen it you know a dozen times, but right. You sit there and you think, well, look, this is this is this is the Ed Sullivan Theater. This is where Letterman recorded all those years. It's that same building. It's the same right. theater. And and then you talk about them staying at the Plaza Hotel, you know, screwing around with Murray the K, who was an yeah. old classic DJ and promoter, uh, going in the horse-drawn carriage in Central Park. And it all really exploded from that moment. It all it all exploded once they landed in New York. And you and you talk about the power of television. I mean, without television, if they had done a live event on radio, yes, I think it would have been popular, but not like this where people could see them, the whole country could see them all at once in the flesh, playing their own instruments and sing, you know, not 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 um singing their own songs, not not miming. And you watch it. I, I mean it's it's how old is it? Fifty something years old? How old? Yeah, sixty. Fifty seven. Okay, years? it still has electric level of it of excitement to it. It's just incredible. You watch every face in that studio, and there, I didn't. I also didn't know that only sat seven hundred people. Yeah, you wouldn't know it because it's not. Somebody described it like like sort of like an airplane engine roaring as soon as they <laughs> right. introduced the Beatles and. With with hindsight being twenty twenty, you can watch it now, knowing what's coming for them, and just appreciate it so much more. And seeing how even physically how they looked in February of nineteen sixty four, and how they looked when they broke up in nineteen seventy with the longer hair and the mustaches yep. and all that, and, and and to how they were, um, how Brian Epstein, had, their manager, had dressed them in matching suits and you know and the haircuts and all that so they was like they were like a brand <laughs> yeah. first boy band you know yeah and it was great because you 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 pointed out that that really came from that whole Rory and the Storm group yes. they they really influenced that that style yes they they did and 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 even Ringo I mean you had it was really like the first big band that had a one of their members, not where um, Ringo. Like, where did that name come from? Was it John Paul? If it would have been John Paul, George, and Pete, right. yeah, they would have probably been. But it was just so novel at the time to have that kind of group writing and singing their own songs with a drummer with a nick, not even his real name, with wearing rings on his fingers, and it's it's just incredible. Right. And then just the whole way they sort of crafted the whole band, John Paul, George, using their names. And Ring, Ringo, who was Richard, Richie Starkey, everybody right. called him Richie. Right. He wasn't Ringo, right. but they came up with the name because he liked Westerns. <laughs> yes. Right. He that, got that it from a Western. Yep. Johnny Ringo. And, uh, and yep. He's a character, awesome. man. Yeah. He is a hell of a character. I also didn't know he didn't do the voice in Yellow Submarine. No, I don't. None of them did. What? Really? Yeah. I, oh, I, man, I, that was my first movie. I know they were they were contractually obligated to do to write the songs, um, but they did not do the voices. They had some, and you wouldn't. I mean, you, even now, I think if you watch it, you're like, "Wow, really? really? It's not wow. them." Wow. Yeah. Well, I was yeah. three, so I don't. I don't yeah. remember that well. <laughs> well, that's cool. Tell us, tell us some things you remember about. Now, I said I said you were with the Post since around the Dinkins administration. I think you actually came just after. I started right? in 95. Okay, so 95. But that, that was the idea. City yeah. was different back then. Yes, the city was – even the Post was different. I mean, 
um, if you if you want to talk from a from a just a, a journalism print standpoint, I mean, we the staff was we had a lot we had a lot more staffers than we do now. Um, yes, the city was different. It, you, you had no uh, email. Just from us from a um, from that point of view, we had no email with no internet. Uh, the city was 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 going through a renaissance at that time. I mean, it was it was you know Giuliani was it was in office and. Uh, the crime was down and he was and only what, in office about a year at that point. Actually. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, we had a, a lot of the same problems we have now, but the city was, it was just, it was a very vibrant time to be working in Manhattan. Um, as you could probably say the same thing about it. Maybe if you were working in Manhattan, like in the mid seventies, when there was a lot of, there were a lot of problems and and you know, garbage strikes and all that. In in the mid nineties, a lot of that had not happened in a while, so it was a it was a good time to be there. Um, and Broadway was booming, and movies and television and all that kind of thing. So yeah, it was a good time to be in the city. Really was. So you you did grow up in northern New Jersey. What what town? Paramus, New Jersey. Oh, you're in Paramus. Okay. Yes, I grew up in Paramus. So you were literally right in the shadow of the city. You, yeah, you, half hour away. You came in a lot. We did. Um, I did. We when I was younger, my parents we went to we went to see Broadway shows. Um, my grandparents lived in the Bronx um, on the Grand Concourse, so we spent a lot of time there. Um, I'm a big Mets fan, so spent a lot of time at Shea Stadium. Um, and yeah, I mean Manhattan was was usually either going to dinner or to go to see a Broadway show. What was it? about this business that drew you into this as a career? You know, it's a good question. I, I, I've always been into sort of pop culture and his, the history of pop culture. I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch, um, I'm 60 this year, so I may be a little a few years older than you. So you just used, buy a there was a show <laughs> on, um, there was a show called Biography. It was, it was, it was my Mike favorite Wall- show. I don't know why they Mike got Wall- rid of it. Yeah. And they, it used to air, I think it was on channel 11 on Saturday morning. I used to get up early to watch that. I just, I loved that show, you know, and, and it was newsreel footage and just of, you know, Queen Elizabeth or you know, Babe Ruth or whoever it was. So I've always been interested in, 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 in pop culture and, and the, the people creating pop culture biographies. Um, I actually started, I started my journalism career. I was doing, a lot of movie reviews at the time. Cause I, I mean, I'm a big, a huge movie buff, but TV to me was always, it, it, it still is to me much more um, accessible. And even the stars of TV shows, because there's so much product out there. And even, even when you only had, you had ABC, NBC, CBS. Okay. You only have three networks, but you had shows that were airing. For, they used to do 39 episodes a season. Now they do 22 if they're lucky. 13, maybe nine. So you had these TV shows. They were like movies every week, hour long, even if, okay, if they were hour long still, you're doing 39. Raymond Burr was doing 39 hour long episodes of Perry Mason. Brutal workload. Wow. But so um, just there on your TV screen every week. And even, even with sitcoms, you know, uh, Joey Bishop had a sitcom in the early, the Joey Bishop show, but they were doing 30, it didn't last too long, but they were doing 39 episodes or 
Gilligan's Island or F Troop or my favorite, Get Smart. You know, you, they were doing a lot of episodes. So you felt like these people were part of your life. And maybe not some movies. Okay, maybe uh, Jack Nicholson or Steve McQueen made two movies a year, maybe three, perhaps. And they were big. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they were up there on the big screen. But when it's something coming, when it's somebody coming into your living room, you're sitting on your couch watching, or you as a every kid, week, it's every like week. A, it's like you're seeing your friend. Almost. Exactly, and it, it's, you have to be there at the same time every week. Yes, and it's right. Exactly, you know, the Thursday at eight. It's a Sanford and Son. It's a much more immediate connection. Um, as a matter of fact, today I have a story in the in the paper today about the 40th anniversary of Hill Street Blues. Oh my God, that, that might have been yeah. my favorite show ever. Great cop show. Yeah. Oh my God. And and incredible. And I, but I'm, if you're talking about comedies, I was a huge Barney Miller fan. Took yeah. place in New York. I love Barney. Miller. Writing was terrific, <laughs> but it, it was every week. Yeah. You know, I think it was might not have been 39 at that point, but it was just so memorable. And you just got such a feel of New York City with the way these characters, you know, Fish and, and Wojo and, oh, and Barney. And- best. Again, those characters are incredible. I mean, it was just, it, it made the sh- it made the whole story, you know? Yeah. I mean, and even going back to, there was a show called Naked City in the 60s, which I've seen a chunk of, not, not the whole thing, but it, it took place, it was filmed in the Bronx, took place in New York. So you had that New York feel and sitcoms like Car 54, which was in the early 60s, which took place again, in the Bronx, and um, has a very memorable theme song, by the way, naming all the boroughs. Right, right, yeah, um, I remember it. But there's just, if you're, if you're going to talk about New York and television, you got to talk about these shows because they were so intrinsic. And I think even if people weren't from New York, like if they were in L.A. or Chicago, they got a sense of New York from watching these dramas and these comedies. Maybe it was a little an inflated sense of drama or an inflated sense of comedy, but still, I mean, Barney Miller, when you watch those, yes, it was a comedy and they had, you know, wacky people coming into the precinct, but they were, it was very New York in its way. Oh, it had a great flavor to it. You can taste that show. Yeah. You can smell that show. And Hill Street Blues, while it, it wasn't, interestingly, they never identified the city. Yeah, I think it was, it was sort of understood it was Chicago. Yes. Yes, exactly. It was Chicago. They didn't want to pigeonhole it. Exactly. Right. But you can see, you see elements of New York in, in there, just in, in the lives of these police officers. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And the, and the public defender played by Veronica Hamill and Ferrillo, brilliantly played by Daniel J. Trevanti, oh, who I great. interviewed for this article. He won two Emmys for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And just, and just the ensemble feel of that show, you could, you know, it was... It was New York. It was incredible. I I think it's hard for kids today, kids, people in their 20s, to imagine a world where you couldn't watch anything outside of your TV room. Like TV rooms were, uh, you know, it was a foundation. It was something, there was an institution, you know, a lot of, you know, sacred stuff goes on in that room. If I, even for like, I was in high school when Saturday Night Live came on. Even if you wanted, if you wanted to talk about it the next day, you had to remember the lines or the sketches because you you weren't DVRing it, right? Or, or VHS, <laughs> it didn't exist then. 
yet. It was sort of on the way. Or your favorite sitcom or I Dream of Jeannie if you were, you know, a little older and you wanted to talk about even late night, The Tonight Show, if you're watching Johnny Carson, you had to remember if you wanted, if it was water cooler the next day, you had to remember like, well, what did Don Rickles say on the Carson show last night? It was great. Yeah. And you generally were able to remember it because it was the yes. greatest line and everybody's repeating it the, the next day. Yes. So it's like bouncing around the office. It's yeah. so true. We watched, we just, it, we watched TV differently back then. It was such a big part of our lives and so many other people's lives. And even if you weren't, if you weren't watching prime time, you were watching the evening news. If you weren't watching the evening news, you were watching the Today Show or something, you know, or maybe you were watching everything or you were just only watching shows at night or you were only watching Carson. At, a, at a, You know, when he started, he started the show in New York and it was it was an hour and a half. It was a lot of television. Was finish. it really? I don't remember. It was. That. It was 1130, 1130 to 1 a.m. And then once he moved the show to California and it just, it became too much. So they, they cut it back to an hour. Yeah. Wow. I don't remember it being an hour and a half. Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I, I think that, I think it's really, you know, important that somebody like you, Michael, who's running one of the major entertainment columns in New York has this history, you know, under your belt, has this experience behind you that you really understand what the entertainment is made of and what it used to be made of. I mean, I think that's all part of telling the story. I think, I think New York is extremely lucky to have you. And I, I hope you keep on doing it for a long, long time. Thank you. I mean, I'm listen, I might know a lot, but I'm learning with everybody else about streaming and digital. And there's always, you always, there's always things. There's always information. To- I sit down. Here's, here's me watching TV these days. I go into the TV room like once a month. I grab one clicker that doesn't work and then I start cursing and I curse until Chance Jr. and my other son comes in and shows me how to even turn on the TV. <laughs> then once I turn on, it's a series of curses because we have 800 channels and I have right. no idea what's on any one of them. Right. And then I just slam the remote down. I walk out and yeah. I go read something. How do you get to Netflix? So I want to watch Amazon it's or, you so know, complicated. This remote I tell them, I'm like, I, I'm like, kids, you don't understand. We used to have a TV set and you turn on. They were like, eight, seven channels. And that was it. And right. You watched right. what was there. <laughs> it's a little different now. Well, and I also, I just want to say, you really are an excellent author and I hope you keep doing that. Um, I, I hope that you still feel inspired and in that way. And I know I could imagine what a Herculean effort it is. Cause I, you know, I I've done some writing and it's, 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 a I, I am. I'm working on my next book is a biography of Don Rickles, which will be out. Uh, oh, next my year. God. I'm talking about like classic entertainers. <laughs> I When is that coming out? Next year, 2022. Excellent. Excellent. And the one the most recent one before that is Ringo. William Shatner was after Ringo. Shatner, oh, OK. Yeah, that, that came out last year. OK, but people, everybody should you of all the people we've named Bobby Darren, Raymond Burr. Joey Bishop, Art Carney, Red Fox, William Shatner, Ringo Starr, and and Don, Don Rickles. Rickles. For God's sake, get 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 Michael Starr's books, folks. That he he is a fabulous writer on some incredible characters. You'll love Thank it. Thank you. I appreciate it. it. Me too. Well, Michael Starr, 
There is simply no doubt that you are an integral component of the incredible history of this incredible place. You continue to be that critical link between the world of glitz and glamour and the adoring public that wants to see those layers peeled back. And that's what you do for us. And as always, I'm extremely grateful to that special entertainment columnist who, for the record, welcomed my third child, our third child, into this world in style, in the New York Post, <laughs> in print, when Colton Kelly, August 17th, 2008, was welcomed into the world in the Star Report of all places. Uh, the one and only Coco Potts. I mean, for that alone, I can't help but, but love this guy. And um, I, I think it's a perfect reason for him to be the first news media writer professional to be on our on our program we couldn't start with a nicer and more fitting guy michael seth star you are a true piece of new york history and we thank you so much for sharing some of your spirit and and insight with us thanks chance this was great i appreciate it okay stay in touch it's great to see you okay you too look forward to talking soon okay bye-bye author and purveyor of the star report new york's own michael seth star ladies and gentlemen that was really fun, Michael. Thank you so much. Folks, in addition to finding Michael's column in the New York Post every week, as we posted on screen earlier, you can find all of his book titles at his website, Michael Seth Star, with two R's, michaelsethstar.com, or, of course, at all major booksellers. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. And if you're enjoying Island Voices on YouTube, please be sure to hit the red subscribe button on the bottom right of your screen to get every week's episode. Now, damas and iren, mesdames et messieurs, damas y caballeros, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to delve deeper into the history of Manhattan, the incredible history of Manhattan from 1609 to 1909, then you must join us for our primary podcast, Island, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast directories. Climb aboard. History is cool. Folks, we thank you so much for joining us, and we remind you to listen to the voices. They are the indelible echoes of the indomitable spirit of this incredible island. We'll see you next time.